Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. I have to expand my language. I have to talk about things in how they impact people in all aspects. So if we're talking about healthcare, it's an issue of someone's personal survival. It's an issue of economic imperative for that family. It's an issue of the economic stability of that community because somebody's paying for that hospital visit if it's not the individual. And so expanding the conversation to touch on these different topics is how I talk about issues. That is Congresswoman Abigail Spanberger of Virginia's 7th House District. She's one of Democrats' top torchbearers for centrist policy. On our show, she discusses pressing matters local, regional, national, and global, so do stay with us. Full disclosure, listeners, Sunday, November 10th at Richmond's historic National Theater, Full Disclosure Live presents an evening with Not a Surf, one of my favorite rock bands on 25 years of glory, of collapse, of rebuilding, of grit coming out and hustling their name back into the big time. A live recording, hear the stories, then hear the music. The band's going to perform a full concert. You can get your tickets at facebook.com slash fulldradio. You can go to the Nationals website. You can go to notasurf.com. Definitely do not miss it. November 10th at the National in RVA. Full disclosures, evening with Not a Surf. Hear the stories, then hear the music. Join us. Joining me in downtown RVA, right here in studio, is U.S. Congresswoman Abigail Spamberger of Virginia's 7th District. That covers 10 counties, including Western Henrico, Western Chesterfield, north all the way to the exurbs of D.C. Congresswoman Spamberger was elected in 2018. She was the first Democrat to take that seat in 50 years. How are you? I'm doing great, Robin. Thank you for having me on. Belated congratulations. You joined us in uh, January 2018 when you were... You know, you, you had this, this seat <laughs> a baby as a, candidate. <laughs> a, twinkle, a twinkle in your eye, and now you are uh, one of the most written about congresswomen, decidedly at the center at a very parlous time when we don't know, you know, who has the soul of the Democratic Party. We know that there's a battle for the soul of the Republican Party with the yeah. White House. Um, I just have to ask you out, out, out of, off the bat, like, what has it been like? What's been the most surprising thing that you wish somebody had turned to you when you were campaigning for this hotly contested seat and said, if you only knew? Oh, my goodness. There's a variety of things. I mean, I think first and foremost, the the system the system has real challenges when you look and, and a lot of it goes back to gerrymandering, quite frankly. Uh, we've got uh, seats that are highly, highly contested, like the one that I won. And we've got seats that are safe, safe Republican seats and safe, safe Democratic seats. So you really do have a broad, broad spectrum of where people fall in the ideological spectrum um, and where they fall in the need to see all sides of an issue. Uh, so I, I think some of the things that have been most surprising to me uh, from a policy standpoint has been, you know, what it would be like to actually create the coalitions that can get uh, broad support for legislation that is that we may all agree is really important. But how do you get that broad support? And then on more of an anecdotal uh, side of things, it's been wholly surprising to me how everything uh, starts late and no one is on time to anything. <laughs> really? Yes. Yes. I have to say, apropos of nothing, do you bump into... AOC at the vending machine or um, something. Are you guys pals? You play squash. Um, so I don't play squash. Uh, <laughs> and I don't know that I've ever been to a vending machine. Uh, but I do. There's a, a we have uh, the cloakroom is where you can go to, th- to the floor through the co- cloakroom. And we've got uh, a, a, a little snack bar in there. So I, I bump into a, quite a few members who are included in the in the cloakroom when we're kind of running through trying to grab a quick snack on our way to vote or on our way out of votes. 
You know, I asked this question as an evergreen. We did a big event right before you were elected called Ace the Midterms mm -hmm. at the Historical Society here. And NBC News came and ABC News and CBS News' chief congressional correspondent. And I posed the first question to her, Nancy Cordes. And this was on the eve of the election in the midterms, the hotly contested midterms. Who, pray tell, currently leads the Democratic Party? And I got to tell you that, you know, almost a year after that, I don't know who that is. Yeah. That's very much of a jump ball question. Clearly, Nancy Pelosi is Speaker of the House, but you can argue that there's a parallel speaker of the Democratic Twitter sphere in AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the upstart from the New York 14th. She has 5.1 million followers. She has a, a whole generation kind of behind her. You know, Chuck Schumer in the Senate. Uh, well, he's the minority leader. Uh, there isn't a national spokesperson, maybe upward of 25 candidates. Joe Biden seems to be in the lead, but nothing is really congealed out over yeah. one single candidate. Could you come up with that person as the current leader of the Democratic Party? I can't. And but I don't know that that's a bad thing. Right. So I think that it is helpful to have a bit of a, a cliff notes version of, OK, who are the Democrats and be able to boil it down. But but I do think that that there are so many um, there's so many different people and perspectives and backgrounds represented in the Democratic Party. And I think that that's what makes us, uh, you know, I'm a Democrat. That's what makes us a rich, vibrant party is that even within one party, we have a, a skew, a strong view um, uh, of, of perspectives and backgrounds. And we've got veterans and we've got the former teacher of the year uh, from Connecticut. And we've got pediatricians and doctors and nurses and uh, people of all religious backgrounds and ethnic backgrounds and age differences. And so I, I think that it's much easier um, if you're looking at a political party that's a bit more uh, kind of with less diversity in it to pick out a couple people. But in, in our party, you know, I think that's what adds to our vibrancy. Sometimes <laughs> sometimes people say it's like herding cats when you get a room full of Democrats. But I honestly think that that's the, the richness uh, that we bring to the table is that there are so many people who are represented in one big tent party. That sounds always great in theory, <laughs> but in practice when you're yeah. trying to win back the White House and win back the Senate. Yeah. I mean, Mitch McConnell seems to have really figured out a great arbitrage and then how can you take a minority of the population and, and kind of work the, 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 the quirk in the Constitution with the Senate and two per states yes. and kind of have a, a stranglehold on the system uh, in combination with the White House. So. If you can't, you know, he seems to be the leader in the Senate. When he's asked about Donald Trump, he doesn't fixate on it. He changes the subject. And you could argue that he delivers with the judiciary. He gets people uh, who are nominated fast-tracked in there. He minds his lane. He blocks various things. Is there a counterpart to him in the Democratic Party, a kind of a, I don't know, a bellwether, a whip, a person who could, who could get everybody on the phone and say, this is an emergency. We need to close ranks. Well, and and actually, kind of diving into your question a bit more, I think that it, linked to what it is that you were saying is we do see so frequently that that while I'm saying there's a richness and diversity, and it's great because there's you know all these different members of the party, and we're you can't just label us with one person. That doesn't stop our political opponents from boiling it down to everybody is like you know insert the the Democrat villain of the day, so to speak. Um, and so I, I actually do think that there is more of a need, even even though I just spoke a lot about the diversity being really our strength and the vibrancy 
um, of the party. I, I do think that it it would be more helpful long term for those who really do want to kind of boil down our political system um, for us to have a, a couple individuals that you can point to. And, you know, it is a varied, vibrant party. But here are the you know three or four people that represent that vibrancy overall. Hmm. Because you're right. In the absence of that, we we do see those those labels being cast um, w- within the party. And then, moreover, you know, as a, as a as an as a corollary on this, yeah. there are a, a lot of great ideas that you may or may not agree with. You see Medicare for all. You see about college debt retirement, the Green New Deal. Again, many of these things sound great and uh, um, you know awfully. Uh, Wow, idealistic in theory, but how are you as a candidate hoping to get this past the Senate controlled by Mitch McConnell? And if anything, there were Senate seats added by the Republican Party so in I, 2018. So I think this is where there was a bit of a, 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 you know, that's where a bit of the challenge exists. So I personally, I'm a supporter of a public option. I'm not a supporter of a single payer uh, system, uh, as an example. Um, and I, I think that where the challenge comes up is we have to talk through, be it within the Democratic Party or be it across party lines, what are our actual goals, right? Can we all agree that we shouldn't have people who are going bankrupt because of a health care expense? Can we all agree that people should be able to go to the doctor and get an antibiotic when they're sick rather than showing up in the emergency room three months later because they got pneumonia because they didn't get treatment? Um, can we all agree that when they walk in and get that treatment, that ultimately that's part of what's driving up health care costs for everybody else because they are going to get life-stabilizing care thanks to EMTALA, which was put in place under uh, President Reagan. Um, and and so I think sometimes there's uh, coming together and having those sorts of conversations of what is it that we actually agree on. That's, that isn't the fun side of policymaking. It's actually, frankly, what I enjoy because I think that's how you create good, sustainable policy. Um, but it doesn't make for a good bumper sticker and it certainly doesn't make for a winning line when your when your debate allows you thirty seconds. But truth to make be told, though, truth, yeah. truth be told, though, we, we said you were the first Democrat to win this since nineteen sixty eight, and a Democrat that meant something very different yeah. back in the time of LBJ, obviously, oh, yeah. and the reorganization. <laughs> You're the first woman to ever take the seat. I think going That's back, right. you know, into the eighteenth century. Yeah, scrolling here. through Wikipedia is pretty fun. Yeah, it is fun. Um, <laughs> But then, and talk about how multi-chromatic this district is. You're meeting with farmers, with yeah. um, with hunters, with uh, you know uh, tobacco advocates and whatnot. Yeah. You had to kind of stick to these messages and the things that you know uh, avoid the siren calls of of, of kind of um, you know um, entitlement, red meat, and whatnot, and, yeah. and going after Trump necessarily to ride the blue wave idiosyncratically to your district. Your district is not anything like New York's 14 or Rashida Tlaib's district no. or Ilhan Omar's district. Yeah. But so my district uh, is it's Henrico, Western Henrico, Western Chesterfield, uh, Western Spotsylvania, and then seven rural counties, Culpeper, Orange, uh, Louisa, Goochland, Powhatan, Amelia, Nottoway, uh, very rural communities. Yeah, you have to know deer ticks and septic tanks in your district, <laughs> it's right? Very, very, very different things. And, yeah. you know, I mean, even driving the difference of 15 miles, you go from a place where you got the short pump mall and you get in your car for 15 miles and you're, you know, you're on a horse farm. You're out in a rural community that that has faces some challenges that are distinct from what you see and kind of the the crowding and, and infrastructure, you know, infrastructure and shore pump is, oh, my goodness, the, the roads are getting so crowded because there's so much buildup. Infrastructure in Goochland County becomes uh, some of the rural roads are, are tough and we don't have broadband Internet. Um, and so being able to 
understand the issues that are impacting our community. You know, it, it's a challenge because the issues are so varied and the communities are so varied and the needs are so varied. Um, but where I think it's actually really uh, the, the challenge that's a wonderful one is that it gives me the ability to talk to just about anybody in in Congress because somebody somewhere has an element of what exists in our community, um, be it uh, dairy farms, be it soybean farms, be it densely populated suburbs, you know, everything that exists across the country exists in a little bit uh, here within the 7th District. And and in order to speak to the issues that are important to people, first you have to do a lot of listening. And so in a district as varied as mine, um, and particularly with a heavy, heavy uh, uh presence of agricultural businesses and and uh, farmers and producers, I don't personally have an agricultural background. So there's a lot of listening there. Um, and, and, and being able to uh, go out into different communities and listen and spend time talking to people and, and find the commonality of challenges that exist. The number one issue in our district is health care. And that's you can live on a cattle farm. You can live in, uh, you know, densely populated Chesterfields. And, 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 and across the board, that's the number one issue. But you know, I, I think the interesting piece of it is I have to expand my language. I have to talk about things in how they impact people in all aspects. So if we're talking about healthcare, it's an issue of someone's personal survival. It's an issue of economic imperative for that family. It's an issue of the economic stability of that community because somebody's paying for that hospital visit if it's not the individual. And so expanding the conversation to touch on these different topics is how I talk about issues, talking about environmental issues, which are very important to me. You know, when I'm talking to farmers and producers, they know firsthand how important it is to have healthy uh, water and to pay attention to soil health because that means the difference between uh, good output that year or not. Um, and so talking in, in those terms and listening to uh, kind of the, the portion of the conversation that is most resonant with, uh, you know, different individuals is, is really important. For some people who may not have a focus on global climate change, you know, the national security implications are incredibly important to me. And given my background in national security, um, it's a space where I talk about that issue very, very easily. Because if the U.S. Navy says that changing sea level is overall uh, national security threat, you know, that's something that I think is really relevant to the conversation and something that, you know, that I can continue to talk about. So, you know, in a district like ours, the requirement is that you broaden the language so that everybody can be part of the conversation. I would like to broaden the language if we could <laughs> um, as a fellow parent, and you are my congresswoman. Indeed, I met you at a Hanukkah party yes. uh, three years ago. You went by a different last name. You, you were under the radar then, but we were at the Latkes bar, apparently. I'm trying to think back to it and everything. But this is just to underscore the fact that we were fellow Henrico parents. Yes. And as fellow parents in that county on the eve of back to school, and sadly, uh, right after these double shooting yeah. incidents, which have just become wash, rinse, repeat. I think back to Columbine 20 years ago when I was just right out of college. I think back to Sandy Hook and how that had to have been a turning point at the end of 2012, but it wasn't. I think back to Vegas. I think back to Parkland, again, where I'm from you know, in South Florida, and we thought that that was going to be a generational turning point, but nothing really has changed. And I'm wondering what you are hearing. You were you were in three town halls last week, what yeah. other parents are telling you. And I'm really curious as to what these farm owners and these gun owners are saying about common sense gun legislation. Yeah. Well, first, I, I 
to before diving into really serious matters, uh, the party we were at was with a high school friend. So I, I did have the name Spanberger, but my old high school friends uh, are are slow to recognize that I changed my name 13 years ago when I got married. Um, so they always call me by my maiden name. Um, but on the very serious topic of of gun violence, it is. It continues to come up at town halls. Uh, we've now done uh, nine town halls across our 10 counties, countywide town halls. I've done a variety of co- constituent coffees and other public events. Um, and it continues to come up. I, I echo your frustration in that event after event. I remember exactly where I was on the day of the Columbine uh, shooting. And I remember thinking how horrific. I also was um, out of high school myself. And I remember thinking, oh, these these kids, I can I can relate. But um, I can't imagine that fear. And now I'm a parent who, you know, a generation later, I'm putting my kids on a school bus feeling the fear of a parent every day. Um, and But I, I do think that while the change has not been swift, while the change has not been what I want it to be, we are moving. It, it, it's glacier pace, but we have moved. And I'll, I'll just give one piece of evidence for that. For years, we were unable to get any gun violence prevention legislation to the floor of the House of Representatives on Capitol Hill. Um, and then we had a substantial change in in in, in the makeup of Congress. Uh, Democrats won the majority. Uh, there were a lot of individuals who who ran on issues of gun violence prevention and and said this is a number, you know, this is a top priority for us. And so we we passed not only did uh, a bill, a background check bill, which had been in committee for years. Not only did it pass out of committee, uh, but it got a, a vote on the floor of the House in February. H.R. 8, uh, which is a universal background check bill, it is bipartisan, and it applies the same standard of background checks that exist in federally licensed points of sale to all firearms purchases, with a couple exclusions for family member sales um, and you know hunting buddy-related uh, sales. So we went from a place where we couldn't get a bill out of committee to passing it on the floor of the House. Now, passing it on the floor of the House doesn't do much if it's not going to get a vote in the Senate. Um, and that's where we continue to see uh, the the stoppage right there is Mitch McConnell won't bring it up for a vote, which I find to be highly offensive because if he disagrees with the premise of the vote, let it come up for a vote. Let it fail. Let it pass on its own merits. But um, unfortunately, I think the reality is uh, that he doesn't want to see it pass because that bill would pass in the Senate, which is why he won't bring it up for a vote. We also passed in February a bill to close the Charleston loophole. Um, and the Charleston loophole is what allowed a man who was prohibited by law from owning a firearm. Uh, it, it's it's what allowed him to buy a firearm that he then used to kill churchgoers during Bible study. And you've seen and, that now happen. Yeah. You saw that happen at a synagogue in Pittsburgh. You saw yeah. the Christchurch massacre in New Zealand. Yeah. You know that there are so many other copycats out there. And what has changed fundamentally? Yes, the glacial shift has been yeah. aided by the blue wave, but you, you, you do you know cite 94% of Americans yeah. now support background checks for all firearms purchases, as well as a law enforcement partnership to prevent gun violence in the Virginia Association of Chiefs of Police. You yeah. as a law enforcement official yeah. used to carry a gun. Yes. How would this work mechanically? Suppose Mitch McConnell coalesces and says, okay, assault weapons ban. It goes through Trump fines in his heart of hearts to pass this. How do you go back and mop up all the inventory that's out there. If assault weapons are banned, can you not carry an AR-15? Is that not grandfathered in? And also, you've written quite a bit about the secondary market. It is so easy to get one. These are lightly regulated. Anybody who pretty much wants a high-powered 
borderline machine yep. gun can get one. And you could still get bump stocks, I believe. Uh, n- not anymore. But so so just sort of setting the baseline. Foundationally, we need background checks, right? We need background checks for any firearms purchases. If you're buying a handgun, a- any t- any type of firearms purchase, right? We need background checks. Moving into the conversation related to what is commonly called an assault weapons ban. Um, it was actually the, the bill that we previously had in 94 was actually a production stoppage. Uh, so uh, no more... Uh, production of assault-style weapons. And Are you allowed to keep your grandfathered AR-15? So that becomes the issue of how do you handle that? And there's a bill that Ted Deutsch has. So what I think is the appropriate step forward, there's a bill that Ted Deutsch has. He's a representative from Florida, uh, represents the Parkland District. Um, and he proposed a bill that would, under the National Firearms Act, which was put in place in the 30s, that those who currently have an assault-style weapon, let's talk about AR-15 since those, they are so frequently in the news, that that weapon, you would then have to um, fill out a variety of paperwork uh, and you would have to register that under the National Firearms Act. And so, for example, it is totally legal to have an AK-47. It is totally legal to have a machine gun. We stopped production. We stopped new sales. Um, But you can own those. You can sell those items, but they are regulated under the National Firearms Act because years and years ago, we accepted as a community and as a country that an AK-47 has a primary purpose, which is killing a lot of people very quickly. Um, and, And so while individuals can legally own that that weapon. It needs to be highly regulated under the National Firearms Act with a lot of different uh, you know, provisions in it that protect privacy and all the rest, uh, which are incredibly important. Um, but if you Google AK-47, you can find places and where you can buy them. And it says, you know, this is a firearm that's regulated under the National Firearms Act. And so Ted Deutsch has a bill that would put any AR-15s or any other assault-style weapons that are currently in existence under the National Firearms Act uh, so that we know that the people who have them um, are willing to fill out the paperwork, are willing to pay the registration fee. Does that and, let you and, and other parents really sleep easy? at night, knowing how easy the secondary market is. And if you're a person who is hell-bent on doing this, you're not really going to be law-abiding. You're going to go and get your guns. I mean, you know, you've covered money laundering. You've covered the narcotics industry. It's easy enough in Florida or Mexico to get one of these things. Even if bump stocks are illegal right now, it is still easy to get all the the, the ones that have been flooded onto the market over the past 20 years. I don't think that just because something may not be the perfect solution doesn't mean we shouldn't do it. Um, and I would argue, when was the last time that you heard of a mass shooting with an AK-47, right? And and the answer is there are, you haven't. But the Vegas guy accomplished something akin to an AK-47 by jury rigging an assault weapon with bump stocks. And, Absolutely. And, look, and, that, and, and it's not like Congress and the president immediately reflexively banned that afterwards. I mean, that took a lot of hand-wringing and deliberation. Absolutely. What's amazing to me, and yes, we talk about this being glacial, is that if, you know, and I'm sure parents accost you about this, if if, if um, Sandy Hook yeah. wasn't a turning point, what would have to be a turning point in this country? So, but I, you know, thinking I, back I to know, it from, a, parent, from a, a national security perspective, yeah. look at it away from law enforcement, and then you have domestic terrorism in yeah. this case. You could say that El Paso, let's not split hairs. It was a case of domestic terrorism. Yeah. So, I mean, to answer your question about Sandy Hook, the fact that after Sandy Hook, we didn't take immediate action to uh, to address violence in our communities to me is is something I will never ever understand. Background checks have stopped prohibited buyers from buying more than three million weapons 
nationwide. And the fact that there is the secondary market, the fact that you can buy a firearm at a gun show or online is exactly why it is that we need to close that loop. You know, people always cite the issue of Chicago. Chicago has pretty strong uh, gun violence prevention laws in place. Well, but the market in Indiana is entirely different. And so when you look at where the guns are coming from, it's not coming from Chicago. Illinois' laws are working, but they're right next to Indiana. Um, when we look at an assault weapons uh, ban, so Cicilline, uh, Congressman Cicilline has a bill that um, is is one that I think is a is a good bill that would basically be a repeat of what we had in 1994. Um, that is, um, you know, in 1994 when that uh, – we commonly call it a ban. It's actually a, a production stoppage. When that was in place, we saw a decrease in crime. The data show that it works. Is it perfect? No, but the data show that it works. And so I don't – I think that's why we need to take action, why we do need to put – these laws in place. Um, and I mentioned Deutsch's bill because it actually um, further takes one step further to ensuring that um, that firearms that might be in existence can't get flooded into um, a, an underground market or a black market. And will those things continue to exist? Sure. I mean, it, people continue to sell drugs. People continue to commit murder. You can't stop every, every uh, violent or illegal act. But you know, people continue to speed. That doesn't stop us from putting police officers on the street and speed bumps in the road to try and stop it. And as a parent and as a legislator, I think that I have a responsibility to any step that we could take that could save the lives of children, that could remove the fear that people have um, about, you know, being in a classroom, sending their kids off to school. We need to do it. And the data show that these laws, when put in place, and I'll go back to gun violence restraining order, um, also known as ERPOs, also known as red flags, states that have those in place have lower rates of suicide by firearm, lower rates of police officers being shot, and lower rates of domestic partners being killed. Typically, when someone's in a point of crisis, they turn a gun on themselves and those closest to them and those responding to the sounds of gunshots. Um, and so when we look at what happened in Parkland, at the time, there was no GVRO or ERPO law in place. And so law enforcement, when they were made aware that this young man was a threat to the community or potentially a threat to the community, they couldn't take uh, any steps forward. And so, you know, we've seen an increase in, in GVROs being put in place across the country, not here in Virginia. Uh, that is Define GVRO again? A gun violence restraining order, mm -hmm. the, or ERPO's extreme risk protective order. So basically the premise is someone's in a point of crisis. These are the what's commonly known as red flags. Someone's in a point of crisis. Law enforcement can go before a judge just as they would with an arrest warrant or a search warrant, um, and say, we are going to temporarily restrain this person's firearms from them. So it is wholly constitutional um, and states— Assuming the person is a law-abiding citizen, again, the secondary market is so robust out there. There's so much— there's so much, I mean, material, munitions. It's easy to get this stuff. But, so why can't you just step out of the system and go into the dark market? But the so the it's been on the Today Show. Various local news outlets said if I want to go out and you could even get a, a handheld, you know, a shoulder-held missile launcher. Yeah. It's kind of Breaking Bad absurd. But just because some people are going to go through extreme 
efforts to try and Well, they're get, in extreme circumstances. Yeah. If they're going to get slapped with this tag that you can't lawfully get a gun because you're a danger to the community, it seems like you're also in the Venn diagram of stepping outside the law to begin with. No, 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 no. So when you're looking at a circumstance where someone is potentially perceived to be a threat to themselves or to others uh, in a point of crisis for any variety of reasons, and that person has firearms in their uh, in their possession, I mean, the honest bit of it is that most frequently they kill themselves. So yeah. this is also, and when we look at the rates of uh, veterans who are committing suicide by firearms, uh, law enforcement officers who are committing uh, suicide by firearms, you know, people who are in a point of crisis and family members and community members who want to interject, who want to take action in states that don't have a step for law enforcement to be able to take to say we're going to temporarily. But you think back to Sandy Hook and yeah. this was this was a, a child, you know, far on the spectrum who resented his mother, who took his mother's mm-hmm. gun and did it right there. There are easy ways of stepping outside of it. I mean, there's so many guns out there. My point is that it's it's almost prohibitively easy to get your hands on one. But you're right. You do have to take a step. But, I, but I think step when we live, right when we exist in a place where we do right now, which is if I went to a federally licensed point of sale, I have to fill out a background check. Pretty straightforward process. But if I don't want to do that, I have a myriad of options that I, between gun shows and online sales and person-to-person sales, there's a myriad of options that are currently uh, available to me. Um and when we apply that background check standard, and even people who are prohibited buyers will still go to federally licensed point of sale, fill up the paperwork, and then get denied, which is why we've seen you know more than three million denials. Um, but it is incredibly important that the the more we standardize what is in fact our ability to follow the law. So some people are considered prohibited buyers, and you can only enforce that prohibited buyer status if you actually uh, make someone go through a background check process. That's step one. Um, And then if you have recourse for people who are concerned that someone might be a threat to themselves or others, and there's some step that they can take, respecting that person's constitutional rights, but also respecting the fact that they could be a threat to themselves or others, um, and giving law enforcement a, a step to be able to take in that circumstance, you know, all of these things complement one another to have the net effect of making our community safer and ensuring that we know that firearms are being sold to individuals who are legally allowed to have them. Now, that doesn't deal with the fact that people will leave a gun unattended on a table and you see children accidentally shooting each other on playdates. Like, this is a larger issue of cultural responsibility related to firearms um, and, and the presence of a firearm in a home. Um, and, and, you know, certainly in the case of the, the Sandy Hook shooter, the fact that that young man was able to get his hands on his mother's weapon, right, the firearm that she purchased legally, it's a, it's, that's a, the next step conversation. Um, but the, the bottom line is the, the, the more we know that uh, we are enforcing the laws that are currently on the book and applying the standard of those laws across the, the spectrum, uh, you know, that's the step in the right direction. And saying that we want to have fewer assault-style weapons on the streets and, and potentially pursuing legislation, be it David Cicilline's bill, which would be a production stoppage, or Ted Deutsch's bill, which would be registration under the NFA, you know, just because that won't solve the problem 100 percent doesn't mean that we shouldn't take the steps forward um, because it's, in fact, through those sorts of, uh, you know, meaningful pieces of legislation that we are certainly addressing the issues. And and it's a it's a basic example. But just because people still continue to speed doesn't mean we don't you know put up speed limit signs and put speed bumps out and have police officers out there monitoring it.
Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You are listening to Congresswoman Abigail Spanberger. She represents Virginia's 7th District, a huge swath of the state. Uh, she was elected in 2018, the first Democrat elected since 1968. Um, Abigail Spanberger initially, I think in 2006, joined the CIA as an operations officer. She worked overseas on matters of national security, including intelligence gathering on terrorism and nuclear proliferation. Uh, I would like to switch to healthcare. It is said, and I remember when you were on the stump in 2018, you said what what kind of pushed you to ultimately decide to run for this was the House pushing to repeal the Affordable Care Act. And that is an issue, healthcare, that's near and dear to all of your constituents. You tell me whether you're on a tobacco farm or you're by the Arby's in short pump and talking to <laughs> soccer moms. This is something that can unite people across red and blue. That's right. Uh, and and the the unifying factor here is healthcare. Healthcare costs uh, continue to be too high. People are concerned about the uh, stability of pre-existing conditions protections. People are concerned about the cost of their prescription drugs, uh, particularly those with chronic illnesses. And uh, people want to see Congress take action. And people want to see meaningful efforts to make the situation better. And I think people are tired of the partisan fights over what is the perfect right step. In Congress so far, I'm a supporter of a public option. I'm a supporter of a bill called the Medicare X uh, Choice Plan. And I'm a co-sponsor of that bill. It would create a Medicare-like program that people ha- would have the option. Well, let's, let's back yeah. up for a second. I'm old enough to remember that public option when uh President Obama was discussing the Affordable Care Act and everybody started coining Obamacare was a radioactive thing. You don't go to public option. (laughs) Now you're talking with the ascent of AOC and her wing of the party and what millennials want. Uh, Medicare for all is always a trending hashtag. Bernie's out there extolling it. You see Elizabeth Warren, some of the leading lights of the 2020 potential ticket. It's amazing how much the conversation has shifted. And yet uh, Joe Biden, the front runner, does say that we can do a better job, like you say, improving Obamacare versus scrapping it and bringing out Medicare for all. What is it that still makes Medicare for all so uh, radioactive to a centrist audience? Well, so I think it's a, an issue of I want to deliver healthcare options to people I represent. Um, I want to ensure that every single person in my district has healthcare coverage. I sat down with a roundtable of cattlemen yesterday, and they were talking through the prices of their healthcare. And one gentleman said that this is the first year in his life he's chosen not to have healthcare because he absolutely can't afford it. It's his farm or it's his healthcare, and he chose to give up the healthcare. Um, and and so, for for me, when looking at how do you solve this problem, there are a heck of a lot of people who like their employer provided insurance. I've never met one. <laughs> <laughs> really, does anybody going to go out of their way like like with USAA say, oh, I love that service? I personally have never met a person who uh, adores his employer-provided health Well, I have plan. met a heck of a lot of people who don't want to give theirs up. Mm. Um, and so, you know, this is where I think the the public option and, and even the conversation related to Medicare for all, you'll, you'll, you will hear people say, oh, well, Medicare for all, but only if you want it and only under these circumstances. And, and basically that's a public option. Sure. So there's, there's, a, there's an element in this where people are not always talking about the exact same thing. Um, in the public option bill that I support, it's a Medicare-like program. You can, and I say Medicare-like because it would be applied separately from the, the senior citizen and retiree-focused program. So administered, um, you know, the same price negotiation would have gone into it, et cetera, but it um, it, it wouldn't impact seniors in their program. Um, and you can choose it if you want to choose it. You can buy into it if you want to buy into it. Um, and it is another option. 
because people love, well, not everybody, but a lot of people love Medicare. And so let's make it an option for those who want it. Um, But that shouldn't necessarily impact those who do not. And when we're looking at how it is that we achieve more people in ideally our entire community having access to a strong healthcare, preventative healthcare, you know, the ability to keep themselves healthy, the ability to get their kids and themselves prescription drugs, like that is my priority. Um, and in complete upheaval of our healthcare system, uh, I don't think is a way to do it. You know, sadly, the ACA went into place 10 years ago, and we're still in a position where in 2016, many of my colleagues ran on the notion of completely repealing it. In 2018, many of my colleagues uh, ran because they tried to repeal it in 20, you know, in 2017. Is it your perception that it's hanging by a thread? If something doesn't happen, if it's not reinforced, then you, get, you don't get some sort of unanimity from both chambers and the, ACA? the White House. Yeah. No, I that don't it's think it's going to die hanging. on the vine? I don't think it's going to die on the vine, but I think we are in a place where we're, we need to strengthen our healthcare system for the American people. The lack of options that exist, particularly in some of our rural communities, are driving up prices. We have places where insurance providers have left the marketplace, and that has a negative impact on people who are looking to buy insurance. Um, the loss of the individual mandate with the 2017 tax bill was not helpful. Well, these insurance companies um, would. I mean, you saw Anthem pull out of a huge swath yeah. of Central Virginia. They would love to put the sicker pools of people to Uncle Sam, kind of, a, you know, uh, it's an externality. These are for-profit companies. If you look at the the, the amount generated uh, in profits at the turn of the century by hospitals and healthcare providers and managed care providers, and even the intermediaries that deal with prescription drugs, the argument that you're seeing Bernie Sanders and uh, Elizabeth Warren make is that all of that money could be conserved in terms of marketing expense, uh, stock compensation, everything, and can be thrown back into the pool in the in the broader interest of healthcare for all. Is there not something to that? Well, and I think the something to that is exactly reflective of why it is that I think that that the Medicare X plan is such a good option. Because when you look at Medicare, there are no CEO salaries. There's not huge expenses for advertising. Um, and so what would those premiums be? By, according to the CBO, the, the program would have no additional cost to the government because people would be able to pay for their expenses through the premiums that they would pay. Um, and so I, I think that when we're looking at that as a general concept, looking at the public option is exactly the right place to land on that. For those who um, choose to have that as their health provider, uh, their health insurance provider, I think it's the, the right step. It ensures that people have access. Medicare is available in every single zip code across this country. And so to bring Medicare X forward as an option for those who want it, I think is the right is the right step. And there are a number of variety of different presidential candidates who are echoing that same notion of, you know, this program is a good program. Let's let people who choose to have it have it. Um, and and when we look at even comparing the United States to other countries, we are multiples uh, larger than other countries that have single-payer healthcare systems. And, and so I, I think that recognizing that when we are making uh, shifts to our uh, to what is one of the largest elements of our larger economy, that's our healthcare system, um, that, that we need to do it in a way where we're responsibly respecting and providing for the individuals who depend on our healthcare system. Um, and so it's for that reason, I think Medicare X is really the way to go because it ensures that everyone can have healthcare. Uh, it works on a program that is already proven to be quite popular. And, um, you know, it gives people the choice uh, as they as they choose to pursue it or not. 
Abigail Spamberger, Congresswoman, we are in day 937 of this uh, trade war with China, and I'm wondering what you're hearing in the agricultural trenches. Uh, it's, a, it's a paradoxical result in that that was such a big part of Trump's base in the heartland, in the Rust Belt, whatever you hear, and then he comes back and in the interest of sticking it to China as what he alleges is a currency manipulator, and this is too lopsided in terms of their uh, trade surplus, their massive yawning trade surplus with us. But what does a farmer say in the end, even if on the back end you're giving them uh, outs and subsidies to kind of lessen the pain? Well, and, you know, this is certainly an issue here in central Virginia with our large uh, agricultural communities, but it's an issue nationwide. I've talked to my colleagues who represent entirely agriculturally focused districts who are just really, truly hurting. Uh, Farmers don't want subsidies. They want to sell their crop, right? Farmers don't want government bailouts, they want to sell their crops. Um, and and it isn't an issue of the immediacy. So because of the trade war, uh, we've got farmers who aren't able to sell their soybeans. Well, it isn't the immediacy of not being able to sell their soybeans that is actually the deepest problem. It's the fact that they are losing markets. Um, and I've talked to farmers who have said, I've worked for years to develop relationships with uh, those who are buying my product and now I am losing those, and I have nothing that I can say. I don't know when this is going to end. I don't know when the trade war is going to end. And the people that I'm selling to are turning their heads towards Brazil, and I may never get those markets back. And so I think recognizing that that the immediacy of the problem is dire for farmers, and, and we kind of – the government at this point is responding through uh, government bailouts. But this is a long-term self-inflicted wound – and the people who are going to be paying the price for it are our farmers who are going to be losing their market share, continue to lose their markets, um, and and may not be able to recover them. Um, and, you know, it, it's something that I've been a lo- vocal voice on. I serve on the Agriculture Committee and the Foreign Affairs Committee. So it's the place where <laughs> tariffs and their impact on the agricultural community really re- unite. Um, I And it, it's truly, truly detrimental. And it's something we need to we need to address. You know, frankly, uh, according to Article One, authorities of the Constitution, the ability to levy tariffs uh, should exist with Congress. The fact that the president stepped, uh, I think, beyond constitutional authorities to use this uh, national emergency um, uh, framework to be able to uh, levy uh, or begin a, a trade war against China, I think, is um, is part of the problem, even just from a constitutional authority perspective. Um, and the people paying the price are the farmers and the American consumers. I could if I wanted. And, and you know, we could spend hours on this, just focus on Virginia and the Democratic Party and uh, the Beltway and D.C. and, and your domestic focus, but you are also steeped in international affairs and you do sit on the foreign affairs committee. And to that extent that we did just flick at China, I have to ask you about Hong Kong Mm. and how that could ripple across the economy. I mean, we are uh, a bit past 30 years after the Tiananmen Square crackdown and massacre in Beijing. And you see wisps of the rhetoric of this in China with this this bauble that it's had in Hong Kong since 1997, where there's a, a, a tremendous amount of pride and autonomy and don't tread on me. And you saw this extradition act that everybody pushed back at. But when you see one of the most important airports in the region shut down, one of the biggest economies in the region, one of the biggest stock exchanges on the planet, and back and forth between China and Hong Kong, and you wonder what options do the United States and NATO and the others have outside of just suasion? telling China to behave, especially when we're in a trade war with them? Well, I think the first thing that I would love to see would be the 
the president of the United States, the leader of the free world, stand up for the freedom of the protesters in Hong Kong for their ability to use their voices and their ability to, you know, advocate for their own autonomy. And so, with that notable absence, uh, unless something's happened this morning that I missed, with that notable absence, I think that, you know, it's a shocking lack of of leadership, U.S. leadership on the world stage, and and what we're seeing in China in terms of the strength of an of an authoritarian government is is not unique from what we're seeing elsewhere, but from Hungary to Russia to uh, Venezuela, we're seeing uh, the not just the rise, but also the kind of normalization of authoritarian leaders, which is deeply, deeply concerning. Um, I, I do serve on the Foreign Affairs Committee, and so this this uh, the issues that are impacting the rest of the world are are something I spend a lot of time when I'm on Capitol Hill focused on. But but we also need to recognize how that impacts our country. We talked about the trade war. We talked about our challenges with China. But it also um, it, it comes into technology. It comes into the future of American privacy. Uh, before we were on the air, uh, I mentioned briefly that I have a 5G-related bill. So frequently we'll hear people talk about the threat of Huawei, which is a Chinese uh, company, and 5G technology. And the the threat exists because we have a company that is kind of working hand in glove with Chinese military and Chinese intelligence that is now uh, pushing itself into the position of of technological leadership on 5G technology. Yeah, hold, hold that thought. So yeah. China, if you go back to 1980, the government made the decision to have national champion electronics manufacturers. Now your iPhone is manufactured there. There's no way to source this production in the United States. Most of the semiconductor equipment stuff, um, the really fine foundry chip material, the entire supply chain is decidedly China. It's no longer in Japan. Korea can't really do it. It's all sourced in China. The Huawei incident illustrates to us that how much of that, having you know had a, a, a military upbringing, is going to cross over into surveillance. I mean, if you you saw with this face recognition mm-hmm. software, China is, and the Good Citizenship Initiative. I mean, it's your face yeah. is recognized yeah. everywhere in China, and it's inventoried. And China is also in pretty much every hardware product. The Mac laptop I have here, the iPhone that I have, most smartphones. So how are you going to be able to say when we don't have alternative providers of this, alternative manufacturers to kind of step in and fill in the void? How do you, you can thumb your nose at Huawei and Beijing? as much mm-hmm. as you want, but there's no one else out there, arguably, who can help us roll out 5G. Uh, technologies coming from China or from any other adversary nation, in fact, um, when we don't have uh, our thumb on the pulse of what is happening and when we are not actively engaged in technological advancement ourselves and planning for threats that may exist, uh, we are going to face challenges from a national security perspective that we just aren't prepared for. And so the bill that I introduced, wholly bipartisan, we've got uh, equal number of Republicans and Democrats behind the bill, would require that we develop a national strategy f- to deal with uh, 5G technology, to deal with the threat to potential uh, U.S. consumer data, U.S. privacy, um, and to determine through the development of that uh, strategy, what alternatives do and don't exist and how here at home domestically we can uh, begin to ensure that there are additional sources of of technological ability and capability that won't compromise uh, the privacy, the data, or the information of American citizens um, as we believe to be the current threat with Chinese development of 5G. Are there other countries that we're kind of engaging on this, maybe mutual uh, concerned nations such as Japan or South Korea? 
Well, you're seeing the so the UK um, is considering at this point whether or not to go back to a um, a, a prohibition. Uh, I believe would probably be the best way to term it of uh, Huawei related five G technologies. Um, but but you know the, the challenge is what else exists out there, and so I think in developing a strategy for how to contend with it with our partners and allies um, is is the first step in in heading in the right direction. But we are not unique in facing this challenge. Certainly any uh, country that has a challenging relationship or even a friendly relationship kind of across the board with China um, faces the very real threat of their data being compromised, their uh, individual users' privacy being compromised because of the nature of uh, how Huawei works as a company and its roots in Chinese intel and military. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You're listening to Congresswoman Abigail Spanberger of Virginia's 7th District. She's been in the U.S. House, was elected in November of 2018 in the big blue wave. She's up for re-election in 2020. She sits on the House Foreign Affairs Committee. Uh, as a good Persian boy, I do have to pose the indulgent question and get your take on Iran. Hmm. Or else my relatives would just never talk to me again. <laughs> How do you look at Iran? You've had yeah. this past in intelligence. It's been 40 years since the Islamic Revolution. We had the head of the Council on Foreign Relations on and there have been so many misadventures, like Ronald Reagan sending the Ayatollah a birthday cake and a Bible, Iran-Contra, <laughs> the axis of evil, this administration kind of doubling down on that. And you saw even Voice of America, Persian has become partisan. And yet you hear from the Trump administration that he's a deal maker. And if he's going to work with someone like North Korea and Kim, that he's open to a grand bargain with Iran. How do you get your arms around Iran? Well, so there's, I think, different questions, how I get my arms around Iran versus how I get my arms around current U.S. policy towards Iran. Um, the, the, the first is a challenge. The second, I think, is impossible. One of the interesting things, people talk about the JCPOA, so the Iran nuclear deal, all the time. Uh, we walked away from the deal, and we did at a time when the independent IEA was saying that the Iranians were continuing to abide by the deal. So this is multi multinational deal, took months and months and months for a, a room full of diplomats from around the world to come to terms on based on intel, based on diplomatic relations. You know, and they the goal of that deal was to um, thwart the threat of a nuclear Iran. And the deal was in place. Um, and the deal became very partisan with the new administration. And it was very clear from the from the get-go that the president wanted to walk away from this deal. And so he began by not certifying the, um, Iran's adherence uh, to the deal and then ult ultimately deciding that we were going to walk away from it. Um, what I find to be very challenging is we are in this point uh, of the maximum pressure campaign that the administration has put forth where we are exerting, quote unquote, ma maximum pressure on the Iranians through increased uh, sanctions. Um, and and what is absent from the circumstance and from a foreign policy perspective and a national security perspective, this is what I find to be very frightening, is there does not appear to be any coherent or consistent strategy towards Iran. Um, we walked away from the JCPOA, whether it was perfect, whether it was terrible. You know, I think anybody could argue anywhere between those two adjectives. Um, but it still was a plan that was working. Um, the Iranians, by independent assessment, um, were not pursuing, uh, were in compliance with the agreement. And now we are in this point of maximum pressure where we have uh, an administration that is uh, routinely talking about the Iranians um, and making links and overtures. Uh, we heard Secretary Pompeo make a comment linking the Iranians to 9-11, which is just, I mean, a, really a stretch 
um, by every by every measure. Uh, to be clear, uh, Iran is a malign actor in the world, um, and and is a tremendous national security um, challenge for the United States for our regional partners in the Middle East. But with absent a, absent a strategy of how to contend with Iran, I'm very concerned uh, with some of the rhetoric coming out of the administration. In particular, uh, a number of us have been very clear on the fact that the 2001 authorized use of military force that was put in place um, directly after 9-11 that allowed us to take aggressive action against al-Qaeda and its supporters, um, many of us have been very clear on the fact. And when I say been clear, I mean including in resolutions um, and in amendments that we put in the National Defense Authorization Act explicitly saying the 2001 authorized use of military force should not be construed to be applicable in any way towards uh, aggressive actions towards Iran. Um, but when we do see the administration make these links between al-Qaeda and, and Iran, when they say things, um, I, I think it is very, very worrisome uh, for many of us who serve in the Foreign Affairs Committee, on the Intel Committee, or um, certainly on the uh, Armed Services Committee. You talk about regional allies in the yeah. Middle East and how do you get your arms around Mohammed bin Salman? And especially yeah. with the Khashoggi uh, murder here, he's a person who spent a tremendous amount of time in Virginia. He wrote for the Washington Post. Yes. He had many friends in journalistic circles here. That has still left a stink in the room when we talk about regional interests. It's not like Mayor Bloomberg is touring Manhattan with MBS <laughs> anymore. But then is that a legit ally in your estimation, in your career in intelligence and counterterrorism, that that's someone that we maybe from a real politic perspective have no choice but to cooperate with? So the, the Saudis have been strong partners in our efforts to address the threat of terrorism. But that doesn't, for a minute, mean that we shouldn't be standing up for one of the most basic American values, which is freedom of the press, um, that we shouldn't be advocating for and defending and demanding answers related to the death and vicious murder of a, a man who had made his life in the United States uh, a resident of Virginia. Uh, and, and so w while we have historically had a strong relationship with the Saudis, that doesn't negate the fact that we should always time and time again, wherever necessary, wherever possible, stand up for American values, it, it, most especially denouncing and demanding answers related to the death and murder of uh, of a journalist living in the United States, Frank, a journalist living every anywhere. How can but, the president, you know, the leader of the free world, the commander in chief, be consistent with that if he's ex literally exchanging letters with um, the leader of North Korea, the dictator, and, yeah. and bragging about it, and literally saying that you know we have no choice but to deal? I believe what MBS told me. Um, you know, simpatico with the ruler of the Philippines, who's been hostile to yes. the press and the free press, and he himself is not overtly. Uh, enamored with the free press and yeah. routinely kicks people out of the White House. So I, so I don't think that you can square it. I don't think that um, that his behavior is what I would want to see out of the leader of the free world or out of the president. Um, I think related back to Saudi in particular, I think that there's also a really um, appalling presidential overreach in that the administration declared a national security priority to sell a variety of weapons and weapon systems to Saudi uh, for their continued use uh, in killing in, in Yemen. And I was the sponsor of a House resolution that particularly would crack down on the sale of paveway missiles. I gave a speech uh, in committee where I was questioning um, a State Department official saying, you know, these are these are massive weapons of war. 
and here we are selling them to the Saudis. These are offensive weapons that are meant to kill many, many people. How is there a national security priority for the United States that they are trying to get around congressional authority? Typically, what is legally required is Congress has 30 days to approve these sales. The administration sidestepped Congress in a violation of our Article I power um, and and tried to uh, sell these weapons to Saudi. And in fact, in the House and the Senate, where we are finding great challenges agreeing on things, uh, the House, in a bipartisan way, passed uh, a resolution prohibiting these sales. The Senate passed resolutions uh, prohibiting these sales. We actually agreed on it, uh, and the president overrode those vetoes. So, you know, it, it, the willingness to overlook uh, the offenses of uh, dictators, authoritarians who would do things like murder Jamal Khashoggi uh, goes far beyond uh, writing love letters. It is also arming them in direct conflict with what uh, Congress has asserted uh, is correct and is acceptable. Congresswoman, in the few minutes we have left, I encourage you to go free skate. I don't know if if, (laughs) if roller skating rinks were an aspect of your childhood, but they certainly were with me in North Miami Beach and Sunshine Skateway. You're young. I mean, but at this point, the the DJ would say, all right, we got some air supply going on. Free skate, couples, anybody, (laughs) free skate. What's in your free skate? What would you like to talk about in the few minutes you have left? Um, What should I have asked you about? You should have asked me about my town halls and my events in the district. Do tell. Uh, so uh, when I was running, it was very clear that there's kind of a disconnect between uh, the level of accessibility that legislators frequently have and the level of accessibility that people seem to want them to have. And so for me, it was incredibly important to get out and hear people, to answer questions. You know, the accountability is not just answering questions that people ask of me, but it's also hearing the questions that people ask. You know, if you're when you're on Capitol Hill and you're focused on all these different pieces of legislation and, you know, we talked about I serve on the Foreign Affairs Committee, so that's a real strong focus for me at times, but maybe not as, you know, top of mind for many of my constituents, being able to ground myself in the needs of the district, being able to talk to people um, at town halls and at forums and roundtables has been so vitally, vitally important. And it's one of the things that I'm proudest of because it it's showing up that I think is how you do a couple things, how you listen to the people you need to hear, how you, you know, understand what's really impacting people's lives, how you show that um, that even when we disagree, there should be uh, there's space for a conversation. You know, I've had great conversations with people who say, well, I don't agree with you on anything, but I'm, you know, I'm glad you're here. And then I get to say, well, what is important to you? Um, and I, I, I get to have a conversation because, you know, I, I'm I'm following through on the things that I said was important, the things that I, I said I was going to be focused on, but that shouldn't come at the exclusion of understanding why somebody may not like some of the things I advocate for. Um, and it's through understanding the people who agree with me and, of course, also the people who disagree with me that I, I hope to continue becoming a stronger legislator and advocating for the things that are important here in the district. So we, uh, we've had now nine countywide town halls, a number of coffees uh, with your congressperson throughout the district, forums focused on specific topics, prescription drugs, uh, cattle industry-related issues, uh, farmer. Uh, we've done a couple of uh, farm You, you farm get a lot of national press, table. and I think it's lamentable that people don't know that Short Pump, which is squarely in your district, has the second biggest Arby's in the country. I 
I'm ashamed to say I did not. You know must that. go. It's like a ski lodge. It has a taco section, a craft beer section. I don't get paid by Arby's <laughs> to do this, but you know we got to bring people to our region. We got to represent. Uh, I, I maybe listen. you can bring AOC and maybe take her skeet shooting and take her to the Arby's. You or know something. what? That is one difference I will definitely think is there. That, that will definitely I be on funnier die. I can't wait. to see She definitely does not have the second largest Arby's in the entire country. No, but district. I think her district has a White Castle, which is frequented by people. But anyway, there's a great funnier die skit in this. <laughs> <laughs> Do it for the party. Congresswoman Abigail Spanberger, safe travels. You are always welcome Thank on this show. Thank you, Robin. Full disclosure, our engineer is John Valentine. This show airs on NPR member station VPM News 88.9, on the NPR One app, which I cannot live without in my car, and of course on iTunes at link fullderadio.com. You can also hear me on NPR's Here and Now. We are big tent coalitionists who love mom and pop issues, huge corn dogs at country jamborees, and thoughtfully compressed podcasts that you can enjoy 24-7 on your American-bought smartphone. I'm Robin Farzad, back with you next week. <laughs>